gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. That. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we're talking about B2B marketing lessons from Vanderpump Rules with the help of special guest, head of content at PandaDoc, Bethany Fagan. I don't even know where to start. Bethany, how are you? I'm great, Ian. How are you? So excited to have you on the show. Excited to chat about Vanderpump Rules, about hashtag Scandaval, about <laughs> Bandadoc, your content strategy, and everything in between. So starting off, tell us a little bit about what you do as head of content at Pandadoc. Yeah. So I manage a team of four folks at Pandadoc, and I am responsible for basically our entire content marketing strategy. So my team consists of a content producer, a senior social media and community manager. I have a content marketing manager slash copywriter, and then I have an events person as well. So we are leading the charge when it comes to all things content creation at Pandadoc. And then we work really cross collaboratively and cross functionally. So obviously we partner deeply with the performance side of the marketing team to really execute on integrated marketing campaigns. We also join forces with customer marketing to make sure our customers get the best content too, not just our prospects with thought leadership. And yeah, so again, doing the full content marketing strategy from start to finish. And why did you pick Vanderpump Rules for today's discussion? <laughs> Where do you want to start? I never thought that my Bravo world and my content marketing worlds would ever collide. And, and yet, and you guys reached out and asked, you know, to be on the show. And I love that you guys tie this pop culture type subject matter with professional subjects matter. And so for me, just the fact that this Bravo scandal, if you will, has kind of captivated an audience and isn't that what we're all trying to do with content and marketing is, you know, grab our, the attention of our audience, get them to listen, get them to kind of pay attention. That's why I kind of picked it was the, the attention of it all is very mind boggling to me that something like this could have such a, a captivating audience. And I think it's relatable in that sense when it comes to content marketing, you know, how can you create stuff that's memorable, that's captivating, that kind of gets people back for more. Meredith, what the heck is Vanderpump Rules? Vanderpump Rules is a reality TV show, and it's about former Real Housewife star Lisa Vanderpump and her staff at our high-end restaurants and bars in West Hollywood. That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire. And they include Sir Restaurant and Lounge, which I found out is an acronym for Sexy Unique Restaurant, Pump Restaurant, and Tom Tom Restaurant and Bar. I mean, I'm not really sure what I've done to you, but I'll take a Pinot Grigio. 
It's a spinoff of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, and it focuses on the interpersonal relationships and drama among the employees, including Kristen Dowdy, Katie Maloney, Tom Sandoval, Stassi Schroeder, and Jax Taylor. So there are blooming romantic relationships. There's cheating, there's divorce, marriage, betrayals, and so much more. I told you that I ate Raquel's pasta, and that's how you come for me? The first season aired in 2013. Now there are 10 seasons out all on Bravo, and they just had their reunion episode, and rumor has it that they're about to pick up cameras once again for potentially more. So we'll see. So when did you start watching this? Oh, I've been watching it since season one. I mean, wow. I'm a big Bravo fan, so I I obviously knew who Lisa Vanderpump was because I, I was a big Real Housewives of Beverly Hills fan. And when I heard that they were going to do a soapy kind of reality TV show with, with her restaurant, I was all in. And I would say that season one of Vanderpump Rules is probably one of the best reality TV first seasons that's that's out there that's I've been for a while. Yeah, why, why was season one so good? I think season one was so good because one, you have young people working in a restaurant. I mean, I worked retail when I was in high school and college and you have that camaraderie of just folks who are kind of like hungry, wanting to make money, but also now you add this element of people wanting to be famous. The first season and the first couple episodes, you'll notice that as folks on the show are introducing themselves, they're saying that they want to be actors and actresses and entertainers. I really am trying to do my best right now. So I think they had this kind of a nothing to lose mentality, right? Which made, I think, the drama a little more amplified, a little more willing for them to take some risks and kind of go for it because they're like, either this is going to be a hit and I'm going to be famous and it'll pay off for me or it's not and I'll figure out how to pivot and do something else from it. So I think there's just that level of like, hey, if this works, great. If not, well, then we did sign up to be on television. So so it is what it is. Colin, did you start watching season one as well? or No, no. I picked up in, what's the latest season? Season 10, right? And that is Colin Stamps, our podcast launch manager here at Caspian Studios. Yeah, see, yeah season 10. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I did season 10, which is obviously because of the drama of, of Scandaval. How do, you, how do you know about this? Yeah, I, I definitely haven't seen the other seasons but like it's it's super interesting what you were saying like the concept of it is so relatable they're just waiters or servers at a restaurant i've served a few hundred crispy chickens in my time and i think like that's at least when i like watching season 10 i don't know anything about it i'm just kind of jumping in but when i saw that that was the concept i was like oh that's so cool that could have been me that was my friends just working at a restaurant so i think that that is probably why it is so popular along with, of course, all the drama. And boy, is there drama. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. After last year, you decided to be best friends with Kristen and Jax and then started talking shit about me. Of course I'm not okay. your friend. All right, sounds complicated. <laughs> yes. So, Scandaval has, has truly captured a nation, a world even. Why? Like, why is this such a big deal? I think it's a couple of things. Back to Colin's point, these folks on this TV show, and yes, it's reality TV, so I think there is an element of things that are kind of staged or whatever, but I do think that a lot of the folks that are on the show, I find, really are just everyday people. They're just there to live their lives. They put themselves out there on television. And I think when something happens to them in their personal life that is detrimental in a way, then it, it, one, makes them super relatable and then they captivate an audience and have those folks have deep empathy for how these people, how these people are going through something, right? I think it's such a big deal because 
one of the the gals in, in Scandival, again, the, the situation is Ariana Maddox and Tom Sandoval are in a relationship. Tom Sandoval cheats on her with one of her best friends. Sandoval and Raquel dancing together at the Abbey. I thought it was kind of weird. It was like 1 a.m. and we were like, where's Ariana? I mean, I think a lot of people have been in situations where relationships have betrayed them and have failed them. And this has happened to someone who they deeply admire and she just happens to be on television, right? So I think that's why it's kind of captured attention and eyeballs is it just makes, it makes her a human being. Do people like the cast? I think people do like the cast. I feel like I I do like a majority of the cast. There are some people that I feel like are... There's a darkness inside me that comes out. A little villainous, but I do think that that is just the show kind of, again, creating characters, if you will, of the show. But I do think that the majority of folks have people of of favorites, right? Like they play favorites of certain things in there. There are definitely some people on the show that I don't like because of poor decisions that they've made. But again, that's (laughs) what makes them human. So, yeah. You hate it. what? You're not important enough to hate. Sit down. You've been with them for 10 years, right? This is not something that, you know, has been going for, for like Colin, just these are fast friends for him. But for you, I mean, these are deep, deep TV and internet relationships for you. If the scandal had happened in season one, you wouldn't have had 10 years with these people, right? So is that part of the reason why it's just the longevity of something creating something that happened like 10 years in the making that you've seen so much of their life to have this change? I think so. I think about season one and through the last few seasons and you have Stassi and Katie and Kristen, they were all friends. They have a falling out. They get back together as friends. Then you have Stassi leaves the show. She's now married. She has a child. I bought her book. You follow these people even when they're on and off the show. So I do think that, yes, there's definitely like a longevity to it. And there is a sense of not only have they built the show, but they've worked hard to build their brands off camera. And I mm. think that also helps people kind of connect to them and relate to them even more. Once you find your favorites or not favorites, I follow them on Instagram and I, I love to keep watching their lives off the screen. It's been fun and interesting to watch them kind of take a show that was about kind of their their personal lives and their jobs and then turning it into a longer career. You know, again, building their brands, you know, some are authors. I know Katie Saucy and Kristen created a wine company and had their own wine for a little bit. And now we are in this world of influencers, right? So of course they have now amassed a following and now they've turned it into a bigger business, right? Because they can sell products that they're super passionate about on Instagram and continue to turn it into a business for them. So it's, yeah, it's been interesting to watch that too. Well, I think that there's, there's a little bit of this to me that screams of the 10-year overnight success. Like, obviously, the show has been wildly popular for a long time, but the idea of, like, this scandal really breaking through to people, like Colin, right, hadn't seen the show and then watched season 10 sort of a thing. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry I'm late. And one of the things that really struck me about this is, and it's similar to, like, people talk about Joe Rogan, like, how did his show get so Mm -hmm. big? And you're like, well, he was doing UFC, for a super long time and was a stand-up and started this podcast and had done like tons of episodes. So by the time this like tidal wave approached that he was already had done whatever, millions and millions of quote unquote impressions on these people. And I feel like with Vanderpump Rules, you have A, it stems from Real Housewives, which is 
a lot of people's favorite show there. Then you have this highly produced, well-shot, well-made, not scripted, but highly edited, high-quality series that you get to watch with all these people that makes them seem even larger than life when you're on that sort of a thing. And you get to follow them day to day on their actual daily lives on Instagram and other things. There's just so much momentum for something like this that I did not realize until I started talking to people like how many people watch Vanderpump Rules. I had no idea because I don't watch it. My wife doesn't watch it. And my two-year-old watches Paw Patrol. If the Paw Patrol have a falling out though, oh my gosh, we're going <laughs> to have... in trouble. Yeah, yeah. we're going to have a big set. Because <laughs> you're f***ing immanageable. You're f***ing immanageable, babe. Yes. <laughs> guy and chase then we're really in trouble but but yeah so i mean i think that there's some amount of this that is like this is a decade in the making but it's also just like billions of impressions on social media that all these people have had and then you get to go to your friend and say like did you hear about scandal like and you want to talk about it and you want to do that stuff yeah sandoval and i have been having an affair for seven months ariana just found out it is of the moment and they feel more accessible because you've been following them on your phone forever and all this other stuff. Absolutely. I think it's definitely been a very long game for them, right? And I, I know as a viewer watching it, I was always thinking like, how can you keep evolving the show, right? Because it's like, okay, well, it's really based about young folks who are working in a bar. Well, what happens when they get married? And what happens when they have kids? And like, what happens when they get older? And I think it's had this really natural progression, which I think has been really nice. And I think folks have kind of grown up with that too, like the audience. But I also think it's also kind of post-COVID, right? Like it's a restaurant. They stopped filming for a little bit and then take the show back up. And I do think though the resurgence, while it probably wouldn't have been as big if there wasn't kind of a scandal, I do think that it is nice to see them continue to be real people, right? You know, like Sheena, one of the gals on the show, she gets married in Mexico this season and she now has a baby and she's she was previously divorced at a young age, right? So it's like, again... These people have evolving lives and kind of have grown up on screen and have shared their lives with us. And I do think it's it's a long game, but it continues to kind of ebb and flow, but still be relatable and relevant, which I think is what's kind of kept people tuning in. Okay, let's get some B2B takeaways here. What are some things that we can take from Vanderpump Rules and put into our B2B marketing? One for me that I've learned is that there's this kind of the on and off screen thing, right? So like how I'm applying it to, to everyday work. So Example, Panadoc last year, we saw a 79% increase in, in social media followers last year, which is crazy. We had 100,000 followers on LinkedIn. How I think we got there, we started a podcast a couple of years ago. So we're on the third season of our podcast show, The Customer Engagement Lab. So we didn't start that in 2022. We started that basically in 2020, when in the middle of COVID in our former VP of marketing's apartment in St. Pete, Florida. I gave Travis on my team a thousand bucks. I said, go buy a mic on Amazon and set yourself up and figure it out, right? So I think for us, like again, that kind of goes with that long game kind of situation, right? Like I think we started a show, it's not necessarily like the Panadoc podcast, right? But it's called the Customer Engagement Lab, which is obviously run and managed by us. And that's elevated the Panadoc brand. I think that's brought awareness to our company. It's brought awareness to who we are, what we do, and what we're producing. And then I think part two of that goes back to that personal branding thing as well. Travis has been co-host of the show for the last three seasons. It's helped kind of give him the courage to post more frequently on LinkedIn and build his own personal brand on LinkedIn, which is obviously elevating the Panadoc brand. So much so now he works with a group of, of folks. We have an internal LinkedIn hustle Slack channel where 
everybody's collaborating and <laughs> figuring out how to find their voice and and just basically figuring out how to how they can follow in Travis's footsteps with with building their brands, their personal brands and hoping of. And of course, me as a content marketer, I'm hoping that eventually translates into more followers and grows the awareness of, of our brand. So I think that's kind of the the relatable aspect there. It's it's again, it's kind of taking these individual folks and their brands, but then tying them to a, a, an overall brand and an overall company, right? So I think for the big part of it is a big employee advocacy lesson there. Yeah, I think it is an absolutely massive part of the modern B2B marketing strategy, and it's so underinvested, it's kind of mind-boggling. But I think the exact same thing that you said, which is, so Vanderpump Rules is a series, which is promoted as a series, it's marketed as a series. If you just want to engage with it in that way, you can just engage with it that way. And it is put out by Bravo. So you have a relationship with Bravo, you have a relationship with a series, and then you have a relationship with the cast. And the cast all have individual brands that you can tap into all those different wherever they are posting stuff. And that is the exact same format that we're all used to. And it's the exact same format that B2B companies should be using. You have your show or you have your brand, aka like Bravo. You have your show name or, or like mini brand. And then the talent or the different people that come in and out of these shows have their own brands. And like a lot of times in B2B, we have obviously people are coming onto the shows as well who have their own brands. The idea of like build your brand, all that stuff. I know that that's a little hokey, but however you want to view it, it is true. And your brand is essentially like how you think about things and how you share it with other people, right? It's like kind of that simple, right? How you interact and engage with your peers and how you pay it forward and how you create and innovate and how cool you are and or how thoughtful you are or whatever it is. But that stuff matters. Like every professional person, every single one that we follow has someone who thinks about their brand as their job, whether it's their manager, their agent, their lawyers, probably all of those things. It doesn't happen by accident. Bravo producers are sitting there working with all those people. Like it's not happening by accident. And I think you have to invest in that stuff. And some people might want to follow Vanderpump Rules. Some people might not. Some people just might want to follow like one or two of the people on Instagram. And if you're a B2B company, you don't care. I don't care like if you listen to Remarkable, the show, or if you go follow Colin on LinkedIn. Like it doesn't matter to me. I just want Caspian to be putting out stuff that people enjoy. And I think that that's like a huge missed opportunity that people don't realize is like, this is how these type of shows are set up now. And it's how like the stuff is winning. And you can't just do one. You have to do all of those because that's the winning strategy. I'd agree with that. That's kind of what's allowed me to open up more content channels or more create different kind of diversify my content asset production, right? Because it's, I'm showing my my boss, who right now I'm reporting to our CRO, who is very leads and pipeline driven, but I'm showing him, hey, Keith, like, this is more than just leads and pipeline, right? This is millions and millions of impressions that makes us memorable so that when people do have buying intent and are ready to buy, they think of us, they remember us, they come back to us, right? It's kind of, again, it's, I don't care if they follow us on, on LinkedIn. I don't care if they follow us on TikTok. I don't care if they watch Travis's video, goofy videos of him in a panda suit. There's constant ways that folks can engage with us and indirectly and directly, right? And that's where 
it's all those things that are mixing together that that come up with that end result. So I, I totally am with you on that, Ian. Yeah. I mean, we talk about like brand halo and brand affinity and all these different things. You know, I like to think of like, does it help me get on the slide if I'm not on the slide, right? If like when it goes to the leadership, there's going to be three options that they present. It's PandaDoc and two competitors. Are we on that slide or not? And if the answer is no, then like, how do we get there? You can try features and benefits or you can try to build more affinity and that can get you on there. And then once you are on the slide, like, are you going to get selected? And there's this study that just came out that B2B buyers are actually more emotional than B2C buyers. When you go and buy like the new patio furniture with you and your spouse, it's like not as emotional. Like you're going to be more pragmatic about it. Whereas like B2B buyers are actually more emotional. And I think that that sort of stuff super matters because if you've listened to 25 hours of Travis talking, how valuable is that when you get into a sales cycle, right? Would you rather do business with that company or the company that you spend zero hours with? It's like that simple. Right. And that's the other lesson we're trying to teach, you know, even our performance marketing team, right? Like they've been so used to being in this like demand capture phase for forever, right? Right. Whereas us from our brand team, we're like, well, we still have to create that demand, right? And that brand affinity and that brand loyalty. So that's where it also gets tricky in the sense of measurement and, and kind of tracking of things, right? But it's also made it easier for our leadership team to then kind of draw the line, right? Like performance is responsible for demand capture. Brand is responsible for creating demand. Demand yep. creation is what we're calling it, right? We're going out there. We're trying to create the impressions and the stuff that, again, gets people to think of us. Whereas demand gen, you work on the the channels and the assets and the other things that kind of create or capture that, that demand that we're creating. So it's been nice for us to kind of rethink our entire marketing strategy in that kind of push-pull situation. So We do the same thing. We have the exact same strategy at Caspian. We have create demand and, and capture demand. And then like sales is win demand, right? Like win the deal. And it's totally true. 95% of the time people aren't looking to buy. So 95% of your efforts or 95% of the time you're doing create demand activities. Content is in every email that you send. It's sort of an endless job if, if you want it to be. And then it blends into brand in a pretty confusing way, right? Is your budget 95% and the other budget is 5%? Like, no, it's not. It's more the opposite. So so where yeah. does that you know stuff look? Yeah. So for me, it's a lot of my budget is around production of content currently still. So I still have to do a lot of research around first party research to capture what's relevant for my audience. So again, making that content more relatable. So a lot of my budget goes to, again, researching to create that that first party data that we can use in creating content. I'd say a lot of my other budget goes towards a lot of video production too, because Mm -hmm. anything that we create that's written, we definitely make sure that there is a video component of it. And that it also includes the podcast too. So a big chunk of that is, is the podcast and video content. Other areas where I'm making some budget and investments are around experimental things. I'm trying some more Working with influencers who have an audience that I can capture their attention from the people that follow them. Can we sponsor content? How do we kind of get their brand in touch with our brand and sharing their audience with us and hopefully getting more awareness from that? And then we're also still testing just boosting social content. TikTok has been interesting for us. We've started messing around with creating TikTok content, boosting that content to get followers to, again, grow Panadoc awareness. So... There's lots of different areas where I'm, I'm trying some tests and experiments and, and again, trying to figure out, can I prove to the CRO that this results in impressions and eyeballs? Because if it does, 
then he's willing to let me have, you know, five, 10,000 bucks here and there to, to, to try to test something to see if it works. So you said you were testing out some TikTok content, right? How's that going? Because like we often have conversations about that and maybe your answer is you don't know yet, which is totally okay. But it's a conversation that I feel a lot of B2B content marketers are having because they're just curious to know, like, is it worth my time? Like are audience members even there? So like, how have you thought about that? A couple of ways. One, we noticed our competitors weren't doing it. That was the big kind of thing that got us into it, right? People that we're up against are the DocuSigns of the world and Adobe Sign and HelloSign and some of those other big kind of brands that seem to be a little more buttoned up and we like to have a little more fun. So number one for us, the goal was just a, we saw an opportunity because our, our, our competitors weren't doing it. Two, we also had a lot of folks internally who were interested in helping us create content. And we were thinking of ways that they could help us do that and be more resourceful. Because again, we're all being asked to do more with a little bit of less this year. So we're trying to think of ways that we can expend their energy, right? And creating content. But, but yes, mm-hmm. we, we try to find things that are trending and, and again, make them relatable to our personas and ideal customer profiles who are kind of looking at us as a potential solution fit. Three, for us right now, we're literally just looking at, can we just amass some followers on that platform? Can we just get some eyeballs? I don't have specific numbers, but we are seeing pretty decent percentage increases in followers month over month there. I'd put it in like the 10 to 20% increase range if I had to think about it off the top of my head. So we're seeing a steady tick of folks following us there. And it's it's cheap, like it's inexpensive for us to run ads there and boost content there because... Again, people don't think of TikTok as like their number one source of getting an audience, but for us, it's affordable right now. So we're willing to do it and spend some money there. That's awesome. Yeah. Got to make the most with what you have. It's super cool that you have people internally who are willing to to make that or help out with that content. Yeah. It's it's pretty cool. I, I really owe that to Tyler, who's my social media manager and and Travis. They're working together. They're, of course, on social channels all day long. They're the ones who are curating the ideas and then putting it into a spreadsheet and then assigning TikToks to to folks on the team, right? And we kind of do it by one department because we'd like to see a mix of different faces, right? So that we're we're representing everyone. And then two, just a mix of sales folks, a mix of marketing folks, even some support folks. We do help curate the content in the sense of like, hey, we're coming up with the ideas and all you have to do is watch this TikTok and execute the recording. But again, it's it's some people do have some ideas and have come to us and said like, hey, I saw this the other day and what if we said this instead? And we're like, go for it. Let's do it. It's been really awesome to have some folks, you know, pay attention to that and see that we're willing to do it and willing to give it a try. That's awesome. I wonder what you were to really take the sort of Vanderpump Rules strategy and like really build it out. If you're like, let's do 10 seasons of a show, what the evolution of of that could really be in B2B. Cause like you look at like Lisa Vanderpump has 3 million followers on Instagram, right? They have, you know, made household name after household name that have massive followings and the combined following of, of all of them, which was, I mean, Instagram was very young back then, but 10 years ago, like was extremely small uh-huh. except for her. And then now it's massive. Right. And I just like wonder if a B2B company went that direction, what they could achieve. There's something that you could do there that I think could achieve an outsized outcome with a similar strategy. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think like for us, we're kind of at this inflection point too with the podcast that we have, right? It's the customer engagement lab. Travis really loves in-person interviews. 
But I'm also trying to get him to understand that we could probably open up the show to a broader audience if we allowed ourselves the situation that we're in right now, right? We're doing a remote podcast interview and we're still getting video content out of it. And that's still engaging and it's still awesome. My point is, I think where we're going with it too is how do we one, get a more diverse round of guests to keep growing our audience? And then I think we're also thinking about how do we make little, you know, smaller shows out of the customer engagement lab? One of those things we're looking at is what if we turn all of our great customer stories into a podcast? Or what if we turn our, all of our great customer content into audio clips and turn it into a podcast show instead of just having these things live on our website? It's an interesting thing. I don't think a brand needs 10 years. I think it's nice, right? But I think they could even kind of look at it in a two to three year format, right? Like how do they have something small or these kind of sub brands or sub employee advocacy and turn it into larger and elevating their content. I think it goes back to that like content marketing one-on-one, which is repurposing, just getting more juice from the squeeze. That's what we're all trying to do. I was thinking about how you mentioned like you followed this show for 10 seasons, 10 years, and how the characters have gone through these life changes, have grown older, as you've also like grown older. I'm wondering if that's something that you think about at PandaDoc as far as like targeting an aging audience, or if you are continually looking to kind of target younger and younger audience, and how do you continue to appeal to sort of a a moving target like that? I think that's a really great question. I think for us, we're constantly trying to evaluate and research our personas and ideal customer profiles quarter over quarter. I wouldn't say that we do it necessarily by like the age demographic, but we really just still continue to look at the jobs to be done framework and is what we kind of base it off of. What are they experiencing day to day? What's keeping them up at night? And then how do we create content that can ease their fears or their pains or just reward their achievements, those kinds of things. So I think for us, it's just not necessarily trying to target younger and younger, but just trying to continue to be relatable in their day-to-day work. You know, how do we keep just being there for them when it comes to those things? And I think you'll have a range of ages and those kinds of things too. And again, kind of makes it a little more agnostic, right? Because it's like, again, if you just keep in mind what they what their job is and what their job function is, and again, what's keeping them up at night and how can you make them look like the champion, that makes your brand more admirable. Definitely. Any other thoughts on sort of like ROI of content or ROI of brand or ways that you look at that? It's something we think about constantly. We don't have some fancy attribution software. We're trying to build our own with our ops team. We still do lead scoring and those kinds of things. But for us, there's two key areas that I'm measured on, which is just audience growth. So what does our total audience look like across Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn? How many streams and downloads are we getting per month on our podcast? That's what we're kind of considering audience growth as well. Are we seeing a consistent growth in you know, average daily downloads? And then the second big one is, which I think is kind of controversial, but it's email capture. It's, you know, number of newsletter subscribers, number of ebook downloads. A lot of our email subscribes come from our blog, which is kind of a shared effort between myself and our SEO team. They absolutely crush it. And we capture emails there for them and then just work with our lifecycle team to nurture them. And then from a, a larger brand perspective, we're keeping it pretty simple. We're just looking at impressions. How big of a reach should we achieve? We still have first and last touch attribution, which works for us currently. I hope it changes, but we'll see. I think our uh, leadership team seems to be, you know, content with us with the metrics that we have thus far. Yeah, I'm on a crusade to get 
content marketing, more budget. I feel like it's such an outsized thing in terms of expenses, especially video. Like if you're going to win, you you need to have video. Shooting video, creating video is way more expensive than sending 500 emails, cold emails, right? Mm -hmm. And it's 500 times more effective. I think it's just always a challenge to justify these larger productions or just rethink how content shapes an organization. Like I always use the example of you would never cut your user conference because we all just know how important it is. Even if you didn't get a single lead from your entire user conference, you just know how it feels so important to the organization. And I feel like the same way with your content strategy, we know how important it is and we wouldn't cut it. But at the same time, you wouldn't grow it sometimes. And that to me feels weird. Any ideas or thoughts there? I'd love to hear I think my advice for folks who feel that way too, Ian, is just, I think for us, we had to start small, right? Somehow I was able to convince my VP of marketing at the time that we need to go beyond just gating content on a website and hoping for the best, right? So I said, just give me $20,000, $25,000 to create some video content around our product and what it does mm-hmm. and where it is. And I forget what video it is, but we do have a video that we've done. I, it was probably on our top performing blog post, which is, of course, just how to write a business proposal. And we finally created a YouTube video for it, right? That's a six to eight minute long video that kind of goes through every single point in that blog post article. And over the last two years, it's gotten thousands and thousands of views. So again, it's it goes back to that Vanderpump like long game kind of thing. Again, it's you got to make some investments and know that in the short term, it's not going to probably get you the exact result you want in 30 days. But Six months from now, a year from now, hopefully you'll see those eyeballs and those things coming to fruition. For us, is from a content team perspective, we just try to control the controllable. What are some of the metrics that I know that matter that I can confidently report on and try to tie that back to revenue for the business? And that's kind of just how I tell the story with my leadership team. And that's how I get them to invest in more, more content for us. I'm with you. Like, I just trust the process, which is easier said than done, of course. But thankfully, I do have leadership on my team that believe in what the content team my team does and are willing to kind of make those investments for not so short-term gains, but long-term ones. Well, considering the Vanderpump Rules cast members make between $10,000 and $25,000 an episode, I feel like you deserve $10,000 to $25,000 an episode for your work because it's been absolutely wonderful chatting with you today, Bethany. Thank you, Ian. I appreciate that. Yeah. We'll, we'll sign you up for a 22 episode season of Bethany Rules. I'm game. Let's do it. <laughs> Any final thoughts for the audience, whether it's content or Vanderpump wise? No, I think, um, you know, if you guys are interested in learning more about PandaDoc, check us out on LinkedIn. On TikTok, I know we touched on that. We're at It's PandaDoc. I even make an appearance. I'm like, see, geriatric millennials can TikTok to everyone. So, <laughs> so don't be afraid. And Customer Engagement Lab is our podcast, too, if you want to give that a listen. Awesome. Thanks so much, Bethany, everybody. And go give them a follow on, on their LinkedIn because we're trying to build that even more, too. Go to pendadoc.com. We really appreciate Bethany, and we'll talk soon. Thank you, Ann. Thank you, everyone. Okay, I'm going home. I suggest you all do, too. Well, let's go. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. 
Hollywood-style storytelling for B2B. In today's episode, you heard from Caspian Studios CEO, Ian Faison, Colin Stamps, our podcast launch manager, and myself, Meredith Gooderham, senior producer at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by me and mixed by Francie Goudreau. Our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise. 